The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Okay, um, this morning's scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. If you could all stand for the reading of God's word. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the Holy Word of God. Good morning, everyone. Um, Before I forget, the Bratchers wanted to thank everyone for just your care and um, for some meals and prayer uh, in all the troubles that they've been going through, all the health struggles. So some good updates there. Um, Judy is still recovering from surgery, but it's going more or less as planned. Uh, Jerry Judge, her cancer treatments are progressing. Uh, The tumor is shrinking, so we're thankful for that. Um, Bob did find out that he has to have a procedure because of irregular heartbeat, but um, all in all, things are are looking up, so they're thankful for our care. Let's keep at it. Uh, Please pray with me. Our great God, we come to you uh, this morning, and um, and this is a, a passage that challenges us a bit, and we all come with a we, we view our circumstances in much the same way that our surrounding culture does. So we, we come at troubles with fatalism or superstition or sometimes nihilism. We just feel like it's meaningless. So I, I pray that you would reorient us this morning. I ask that you would show us your care for us in the midst of the things that we go through. Show us your purposes and make us excited about your purposes. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we considered the Christian life as akin to running a race. The course is set out for us by God, 
And uh, if we want to escape the unexpected dangers and endure all the way to the end, then we're going to have to remember the testimony that we've heard from a great cloud of witnesses. We're going to have to cast off every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And we're going to have to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That concept of looking to Jesus, that's foundational for everything in the Christian life, really. It's so essential, and so the author of Hebrews is going to have us meditate even more on looking to Jesus this morning. And specifically, we'll see that looking to Jesus is the way to endure training in righteousness. It's the way to let God use our circumstances to purify us, rather than letting our circumstances cause us to drift away from a holy God. Now, all this talk about running a race has brought back memories for me of 2010 when I ran the Beijing Marathon. And just like many amateurs at exciting events, I started way too fast. So the first seven miles felt incredible, you know. Um, But then reality kind of punched me in the gut, and uh, my limbs started to feel like lead. And so then I'm like, you know, psychologically I was even more in turmoil because I'm not even halfway done. How is this going to work? So then I start making excuses. You know, what am I going to tell other people? What am I going to tell myself when I have a horrible race or maybe even don't finish? Um, Air pollution. That's it. That's the problem. We'll blame it on the smog. So I was kind of on track to to just have that kind of a race where, you know, I don't want to talk about it afterward or um, I'm just wallowing in self-pity. And then something interrupted those sorts of thoughts. I was passed very strongly on the left. Now, that in and of itself isn't unique. I mean, a lot of people had started to pass me at this point. Um, But the type of person who passed me, and that it was very memorable, okay? This person was a good bit older than me, at least a decade older than me. Like, there's some gray hair. And um, this person, I'm not a tall man, right? So compared to most distance runners, I have to have more strides to keep up with them. Well, this older man, he was at least a head shorter than me, so his legs look like he's a, a road runner, just, you know, going at it there. And then I look down, and this older, much shorter man has no shoes. He's running barefoot. And also, this older, shorter, barefoot man, I kid you not, only had one arm. So <laughs> as he passes me strongly, something just clicked for me. I mean, that's either going to totally dishearten you or, or it's going to motivate you. And, um, and uh, in my case, I said, wait a minute. If he can do this under those circumstances, what excuse do I really have? You know? And I lifted my head and I picked up my pace. And I actually ended up having a pretty good race. And I did make it all the way to the end though always in the wake of the short, old, barefoot, one-armed man. I, I never passed him, no. He was, he was in front of me the whole way, but I had a good time. I was proud of So often when we're pitying ourselves or when we feel like quitting, what we need most is not someone to come along and say, hey, you can do it. No, we need to be shown that we can do it and shown by someone who has faced even steeper obstacles, even harsher opposition, and yet has endured to the very end. And that's exactly why in our passage here today we see considering Jesus, 
is essential because that's how we're going to not grow weary or faint-hearted. So verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Whatever you're going through, you can always remember that Jesus faithfully endured far worse. Far worse. Let's just pause and meditate for a minute on everything that Jesus endured. Okay? Like misunderstanding, misrepresenting, misrepresentation from his closest friends all throughout his ministry. Constantly being slandered by self-righteous religious leaders. And then betrayal and arrest. An unjust trial. I don't know about you guys, but I get bent out of shape when anything in my life is just a little bit unjust. And, and then Jesus, I mean, he's being treated this way by people who were created through him. Can you imagine that? He's mocked, he's struck in the face, he's flogged, whipped, beaten, painful crown of thorns pressed on his head. He's tortured by having to carry this huge wooden beam on his bloodied back all the way through the streets, the jeering crowds. And then he's shamefully stripped of his clothing, thick nails driven through his hands and his feet, and he's put up on that cross and asphyxiates to death. All the while, like, his, his back rubbing raw down to the nerves every time he has to lift himself up to take a breath. So when we think about that, I mean, and, and then even if you were being tortured to death, as Jesus was, you can still remember that that wasn't even his worst suffering. His worst suffering was the horrible weight of God's judgment against sin that you will never have to face because he faced it for you. So consider him who suffered so grievously, so incomparably, and then don't grow weary or faint-hearted in the much lesser suffering that you have to face. And the comparison is drawn out even further for us in a perhaps unexpected way in verse 4. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now the first recipients of Hebrews, they were under a lot of pressure from society to renounce their faith, to just drop this Jesus stuff and go on with their lives. And in their minds, this was a struggle against opposition. It was a struggle against persecution, against godless leaders. Um, I'm not sure that it, in their minds it would have been at first, they would have thought of it as a struggle against sin. And similarly, I think the troubles of the world that tempt us to drift away from Jesus, we may feel like we're in the midst of a struggle against sickness or a struggle in a relationship, or a struggle just to get by financially, or a struggle to be heard. But this says, no, in your struggle against sin. The struggle against sin is underneath every other struggle that we have. It's by conquering the sin that we endure. So we tend to think either suffering is meaningless, or we might think that, well, my suffering is going gonna, is gonna to be used by God for amazing things. I don't know what, but it's going to help someone out there. Uh, and certainly God could accomplish something out there through your suffering. He could be doing a thousand things through every experience of pain that we have. Um, but do we need him to be accomplishing something out there? Could that be our sense of self-importance that, that really wants that to happen? See, whatever else is happening through our pain, one thing we can be certain of is that God is accomplishing something in here. 
If nothing else, your struggles in this life of faith are always about your struggle against sin. Even for Jesus, even though, you know, of course he did redeem the world out there through his suffering, even for him the struggle was an inner struggle against sin. What do I mean? He was sinless, right? Yeah, but no one has experienced temptation to the, the, the depth, the height of hardship as the person who has never given into it. So Jesus' whole life was this journey of trusting the Father and saying no to sin. He had to say no to three-year-old sins when he was a rambunctious toddler. He had to say no to teenage sins when he faced peer pressure as a teenager. When he was 30, he went out in the wilderness. He was directly tempted by Satan with some very adult sins, pride, carnal cravings, temptation to betray God in order to avoid suffering. And then having passed that, Jesus directed his whole ministry toward the cross. And there were still temptations. His own friend and disciple Peter tried to dissuade him from the cross. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And even when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he was still fighting sin. He kept resisting sin all the way to the point of shedding his own blood. So let's not exaggerate our own suffering, right? We haven't suffered against sin like that. We've too frequently given in to temptation just to relieve our momentary suffering. Just a little cutting of corners, just a little compromise to get by, just a little letting off steam. And so we choose comfort and we choose convenience over holiness. When we see that clearly, we know that if we're going to endure in our faith, even through hardships, we can't look to some hidden inner strength. We, we have none. We must consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we will not grow faint or weary-hearted. So he shows us how the struggle is won, and then he gives us his spirit to direct us to live in the same way that he did. So we're thinking about how to persevere in this struggle against sin that lies underneath every other struggle that we face. And usually we're very slow, actually, to receive the possibility that... um, you know, what I'm going through is actually useful. We're very slow to realize that. And that's why verse 5 draws in this quote from the book of Proverbs for us to consider. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline, that's not exactly a favorite topic in our culture, is it? And, but we're meant to see here in this proverb that hardships come into our lives as Christians with a, they have a constructive purpose. They have a reason for being there. We don't live in a dualistic world where there's good and there's evil and they're locked head to head and it's just going to go on like that forever. No, we live in a world where a good God is overall. And you see this throughout your Bible, that he sovereignly weaves in the the things that others intend for evil. Our good Father weaves them in for his good purposes. And it's easy for us to forget that. We so quickly think when life is hard, we think that, well, we must, you know, God is, where is God? He's gone. He's absent. Or maybe we think, oh, I just fell out of his favor, I guess. But actually, he's not lashing out at us in anger. And actually, it's not because he's not able to protect us from every trial. He certainly could. It's because he has good purposes, and he doesn't need our permission to get to work on them. 
Now, the verb to discipline can mean two different things, can't it? It can mean, first, it can mean uh, correction, corrective punishment. But secondly, discipline can also mean simply instructive training. And in, in that second sense, instruction, a, a course of discipline, even sinless Jesus accepted the discipline of the Lord. He embraced the difficult circumstances that came into his life. Um, poverty, hard work, probably the death of his adopted father, Joseph, um, the, the misunderstanding and the, the jealousy from his peers and his brothers, the weight of responsibilities to which no one else could relate. So when those challenges came from the father's good hand to help mature Jesus and to prepare him for his ministry, Jesus rose to the occasion and he learned. Now, how do we know as we, face, um, as we face hardships, are these training and correction from the Lord? Or are they something else? Well, it seems to be the perspective here that God is always using our circumstances to train us. In addition to whatever thousands of other purposes are in play through our circumstances, every hardship is an opportunity to respond in a way that embraces wisdom or holiness in a new way. Because God is just too sovereign, he's too wise, and he's too intentional of a shepherd not to use every circumstance for our betterment. And that means that whatever circumstance you're facing as a Christian, God has designs in it for your growth. How do we know if that discipline is of a training nature or of a corrective nature? I'm not sure we always do know. But I think it's always a good practice whenever hardship comes into our lives to ask, to say to God in prayer, is there something that's not pleasing in my life that you're wanting to get after? And the fact, the fact that hardship, I, th- I think it's good that we don't always know. The fact that hardship could either be corrective discipline or instructional discipline, this means that we can never look down on people who are suffering intensely, right? It could be discipline for their sin, or it could just be an advanced lesson for them to digest. And even if we know, even if they somehow knew that that discipline was corrective, that still doesn't mean that their sin is worse than yours. It could be that their heart is so soft and receptive, and so God wants to bring them further along quickly. Whereas with you, he has to be more slow in bringing about holiness because you're a stubborn child. So, Regardless of whether our troubles indicate God's correction or maybe our troubles are just proactive training, either way, our attitude toward God's discipline shouldn't be any different. We should, be, we should receive his loving care for us. And children don't always perceive in the moment that discipline is out of love, right? But if we're doing it right, they feel it in the long run. Of course, our society doesn't, doesn't believe in the need for discipline, doesn't believe in sin. And in fact, our society thinks that ignorant children are equipped to make permanent decisions about their lives based solely on how they feel. So many people in our day and age think that the way to love a child is simply to just give that child whatever. Just give them whatever they want. But parents who try to win their children's affection that way by just being their friends in the future... They're going to wake up one day and face their children's contempt because kids need discipline. We all crave discipline. We're built to need help in understanding where the lines are. So the biblical perspective is that there is such a thing as evil, and we're born in its shadow, and there is such a thing as foolishness. 
And children, if they're going to be happy adults, need to be protected from that foolishness. So discipline is an act of love by a righteous parent who sees the child's need. And this is very, dis- this is very different from when we discipline in anger. If you're a parent, you've, you've felt that difference, you know? Um, in a moment when I've totally lost my cool, I can scream at my kid. I have screamed at my kid. Go to your room! And, and you know, he'll be scared. And he'll do it. He'll go to his room. But he's not repentant. You know? If I leave it like that for too long, then a resentment builds on his part. So, rewind. What's the better way to do it? If I'm calm and I'm collected, and I say seriously, but without visible outrage, go to your room and stay there until I come and talk to you. He still goes. He's still a little bit afraid. But um, the tone made a world of difference. It assured him that the only thing out of control here is your behavior, not mine as well. And that makes him feel safe. He knows that I'm there to do good to his heart. I'm not there just to assert control over him or just to control the circumstances. So that makes him feel sorrowful for the right reasons, not despair for the wrong reasons. When a child understands that discipline is loving care, then he or she feels safe and they grow to respect and trust the parent even more. So if you're a child of God by faith in Christ this morning, then you can know that any discipline you receive from your heavenly father is always 100% that second type. It's a sign not that God is ignoring you, not that he's rejecting you, not that he's lashing out at you in anger, but actually as mentioned in verse 6, that he receives responsibility over you And he's preparing you to be received into his presence forever. Now, Proverbs 3.11, that's quoted here, tells us two things not to do when we encounter the Lord's discipline. First, don't regard it lightly. Don't be like an arrogant son. An arrogant son, you know, just gets through it. Doesn't need to know the purpose, whatever. They might say to themselves, well, I suppose dad has to get his pound of flesh. Let's just get it over with. Reminds me of my sister when we were young she would actually smirk when my parents were disciplining her and then and then she'd go to her room um you know seemingly unaffected and in my mind i'm sure she was plotting further villainy um she's actually a lovely person now but um similarly we might have the same attitude toward our heavenly father you know we we might think like well god's just going to be harsh with us from time to time who's to say what it's all about Who's to say what he's after? Let's just keep, keep going. It'll shake out. So do you see that's kind of an arrogant mindset. It has us at the center of everything. It treats God like he's impossible to please or impossible to understand. So don't be an arrogant son who takes the Lord's discipline lightly. If you do, I mean, that's going to be a hard way to live. And he's just going to keep bringing it back <laughs> to that area of your life that, that he wants to get after. So instead, in every hardship, you should ask, is there something I need to repent of? Is there anything God might be trying to teach me or some way in which he might be calling me to grow through these circumstances? That's the response of a humble child. And secondly, this this, uh, proverb tells us, don't be weary when reproved by him. Don't be weary like an insecure son. If you think about the child who isn't assured of his parents' love, then he's going to overly connect like, the, the uh, pleasure or displeasure of the parent with 
uh, pleasant or unpleasant circumstances. If I'm being disciplined, then the parent must not like me. If, they're, if I'm not, then they must like me. So don't be insecure like that because all over the Bible we have assurances of God's love for you in Christ. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? That's what's going on here. He's graciously giving you all things. He's graciously giving you the discipline you need. So don't grow weary or insecure under it. Instead, accept it. Accept the discipline of God. You know, children don't always understand their need for discipline. That's all right. It becomes clear over time. But even if we don't understand it, we do have to receive it. God won't disown us if we struggle to understand it or, or struggle to like it. But we need to be really careful not to say, no, God, you must not allow such and such in my life. It's a dangerous position to take. Accept the discipline of the Lord. Now, of course, we don't have to be thankful for tumors or for job losses any more than a child is thankful for getting their bottom smacked or having to do chores in order to build character. We do have to accept it. What you're going through is not meaningless. It's not God being unfair or vindictive. Rather, verse 7, it is for discipline, for constructive correction and training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. So hardship is given to us by God to train us to be like Jesus. And by the way, the reason why it, it keeps referencing sons here, it's not because the author doesn't have women in view. It's because he's using an analogy, and in the Roman Empire, it was sons who stood to inherit. So daughters of our Heavenly Father, you are sons too. And if it helps, just think of the word heirs instead of sons. That's what it's getting after. So in the ancient world, if you didn't bear the father's name and if you didn't stand to inherit, then you might be left without any moral direction whatsoever. The father simply didn't take any interest in you. You want to go to the brothel? Okay. You want to gamble away your allowance? Whatever. You know, you could, you could live as you please as long as it didn't cause trouble for the household. But for the actual heirs, there was a much higher standard. The father would demand that they start growing to make decisions like he would, that they do some of the hard work that he did when he was younger so that they could learn to carry on the family legacy. And so he would show them their errors with great diligence, and he would give them learning exercises that could, be, that could seem boring or pedantic. And similarly with our God, if, if you're spared painful discipline, it's not necessarily a sign that he approves of you. It could be a sign of his indifference or his rejection. And that's why passages like Psalm 73, write that down. Have you, have you read Psalm 73? It's, it's great. It contemplates how the wicked seem to have it so easy. They seem to always prosper until you stop and actually contemplate their plight because they've had all their good things now, and they wanted nothing to do with a good father's authority. So, yeah, they're left without discipline, but not eventually without rejection. But for those who know that they're sons and daughters who stand to inherit, you can expect discipline. Expect it. Don't only accept God's discipline, but expect God's discipline. You're legitimate children. 
and you're not yet to the fullness of maturity that he's marked out for us. So, of course, this lifetime is about our training, our nurturing, our intentional development. So don't just accept that fact, but expect it to be present, at least in some small way, in everything that faces you. The more we, I think the more we compare this to a healthy family dynamic, the more understandable God's discipline becomes. And that's why verse 9 says, Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now, of course, this is speaking of the general human experience, and I'm well aware that some of you haven't had that experience. Maybe you actually never did respect your fathers when they disciplined you because they were cruel or unstable or abusive. And if that's you, then, yeah, you're going to have to think instead about your friend's experience with healthy discipline or maybe think about the healthy experience you're trying to create for your own kids. And I might add, if that's you, if you can't really relate to a, a good father's discipline, um, then I'd say it's even more important for you to understand this passage how our Father in Heaven is not like your earthly father. He lovingly disciplines his kids for their own eternal joy. So verses 9 and 10 want us to see the similarity between um, God's discipline and a good father's discipline, but it also draws out three contrasts between those. Our human fathers are earthly. They had authority over earthly circumstances while we were under their roofs. But our Heavenly Father... He has authority even over the unseen challenges in our emotions, in our thoughts. Um, He cares about every aspect of how we live, not just like don't talk back, you know, use money wisely, get home on time. No, he is targeting our heart attitudes with greater precision and persistence than our earthly parents ever could. And secondly, another contrast, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time. And yet, we learned, hopefully, the necessity of their discipline. Well, God's parenting doesn't stop at age 18. It lasts until not just our bodies, but our souls reach maturity. Um, As it says in Ephesians, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what he wants for us. And the third contrast, our earthly fathers disciplined us as seemed best to them. And I think we can all draw up memories of like, yep, my parents missed the mark on that one. Um, but their discipline, even though it was imperfect, we still, it still had great value in our lives. Well, our Heavenly Father, He disciplines us for our good. The results are not mixed. It's not imperfect discipline. It's perfect discipline. And so it doesn't just work to make us you know, not an embarrassment to our family or, you know, generally a a contributor to society. But, no, he's after something deeper, something more profound. He wants to make us holy. His discipline leads us to being able to share in the life of God himself. And I don't think we see how amazing that is because sometimes I think holiness can sound boring to us, but actually it's thrilling It's thrilling. It's life as it was always meant to be. You're free from self-obsession, free from corruption, free from fear. When you're partaking of the very character of God, then like life totally opens up for you. There's endless joy to be had. Holiness leads to joy. 
Hall of Fame football coach Tom Landry once said that the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. Now, our Heavenly Father is much more than a coach, but um, the same is true. He sometimes makes his children do what they don't want to do so that we can be what we always wanted to be in our deepest hopes, what we wanted to be in, in a way that we can't even express because it's so profound. It's what he's building us into. So God's discipline is for our spirits. It's lifelong, and it's objectively good. So the comparison with our earthly parents is something like, well, if their discipline was even mildly useful, then think about how much more precious and how much more necessary is our Heavenly Father's discipline. Now, obviously, that realization it's, uh, doesn't make the discipline any less uncomfortable in the moment. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So even though we're comforted by the fact that God is at work in our lives, we know that the hardship isn't wasted. That still doesn't anesthetize us to the pain of it all. It's painful. It's not pleasant. And I don't want to just, you know, rush past that fact. Some of you have passed through incredibly hard things, a great variety of hard things. Some of you are in them still. Some of us will walk into them tomorrow, and it's painful. It's not pleasant. I don't want to rush past that. But nothing in this passage is treating these hardships as if they're trivial. I hope you see that. So on the contrary, don't close your eyes to the hardship. Don't, don't just say like, yeah, get over it. No, on the contrary, open your eyes wide to the pain. Take in the full width and breadth of the pain with eyes wide open. But then keep your eyes open and see even more. Look even further. Just like we talked about last week, how we need to let our minds rest on what God has promised for the future. We have to fix our hopes on the joy that's set before us. And, and similarly here we see that we have to trust in the fruit of righteousness that God wants, that he promises will appear in our lives through these things that he's bringing us through. So we keep going because we trust that God is producing that peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. The promised fruit is righteousness. That means in the end we're going to be blameless, without error, without corruption. We're going to stand with integrity before God and another people. And that fruit is called peaceful here. I mean, in the end, it's going to be lived out in a realm with no conflict whatsoever. But even now, as we grow in righteousness, it leads to increasing measures of peace. First, peace within ourselves. Do you want that? As we grow holy... Anxiety and fear melt away. There's no reason to dodge or to hide. So peace within ourselves. Also, the fruit of righteousness leads to peace with other people. As we grow in holiness now, I mean, holy people are, and I should say peace as much as it depends on us, right? Because Jesus was a man of peace, and yet great violence happened to him. But as much as it depends upon us, Holiness leads to peace in our relationships. Holy people are able to see far more clearly which battles are truly worth fighting and which ones are simply provoked by our own insecurities or fears or ego. So do you want that peaceful fruit of righteousness? 
That's a way that we were created to live. It represents true humanity. Do you value the pursuit of holiness at all? If so, then value God's discipline in your lives. Don't only accept his discipline. Don't only expect his discipline, but value God's discipline in your lives. What does that look like? It's like a mindset that when hardship comes your way, first and foremost, you recognize, wait a minute, God is in this. This is somehow from his hand. He's not distant. He's not removed. He's sovereign. He's engaged in my life. He cares. And so he must have purpose in this. Even if it's some temptation from the evil one, even if it's some evil that's being done to you by another person, God can still have a good purpose for you in it. So he's asking you to fight and to grow and to learn and to rise above. And you can pray something like, Father, I receive the circumstances that you've allowed in my path, and I know that you want to bless me and you want to glorify yourself through this challenge. So give me greater faith. Give me greater wisdom. Don't let me be duped by the evil one. Use this to grow me and to bring me through safely on the other side. And you can pray that that would happen quickly too. He doesn't leave you alone in the appointed struggles. And and as we learn to run directly to God for help instead of away from him when trouble comes, then we're actually going to find that his purposes will be completed more quickly in our lives and more fully. It doesn't mean there won't be more challenges in the future, um, but um, you'll see the purpose, and that'll be greatly satisfying. Jesus promised us that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, then how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask for the Spirit to defend you and to guide you in power through all these obstacles that you face. And if that's your desire to walk through this with the Holy Spirit, then you really don't need to be afraid of God's discipline. Even if it's a divine spanking, so to speak, in response to your own uh, disobedience, you still don't need to be afraid. But you do have to believe that the fruit of righteousness is worth it, and that's the rub for some of us. We accept, maybe we accept the fact of God's discipline, and if we've walked with God for any length of time, we've even grown to expect his discipline but too often we don't value it. We kind of have a bratish attitude that's like, well, dad is so stubborn and just a demanding taskmaster. And, and so when we have that attitude, we find no way to have hope in our circumstances that he's given us. We may come to church, we may talk the talk, but we're keeping our distance from him. And our hearts are in danger of growing remote from him. So if I'm describing you at all, please don't bottle in that bitterness that's growing. Let's talk about that. Let's get together. I'd love to hear your story and pray with you. You know, when I discipline my son in the right way, what starts as crying ends in a hug. When he trusts me, even when it seems painful rather than pleasant, then his reaction to my discipline isn't to run from me, but it's to run to me. And J.I. Packer said, This is the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another. It is to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn, thankfully, to lean on him. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence, to trust in himself. 
In this world, royal children have to undergo extra training and discipline, which other children escape in order to fit them for their high destiny. It is the same with the children of the king of kings. The clue to understanding all his dealings with them is to remember that throughout their lives, he is training them for what awaits them and chiseling them into the image of Christ. So we have to embrace that vision for endurance in the Christian journey. Because we can't claim to follow Jesus, the true son, and yet reject discipline from his father and our father. So look to Jesus as your example. Look to Jesus for strength. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. You haven't resisted sin to the point of even shedding your blood for the sake of righteousness. So keep going. And just as sinless Jesus received the hard path all the way to the cross, we can too. Remember earlier in Hebrews we read, for it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we have solidarity with Jesus on this path of trusting God through hardship. Jesus is the pioneer who went before us on this course of discipline. Now we have an even greater need because we have sin that must be burned away. So we too must accept and expect and value the discipline of God. And then running in the footsteps of Jesus will let that promise of sharing in the very life of God give us stamina to the very end of the race. Let's pray. God, um, we, we know the wisdom of this word. We may not like it, um, but we pray that you would change us so that we do value your discipline. I think of the, the hymn lyrics that um, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Tis grace has seen us safe thus far, and grace will bring us home. And Lord, we know that. We've seen that. We are not yet what we will become, but we are not one, what we once were. And I pray that everyone would see that. They look back in their story and be grateful for your discipline and the, and the fruit of righteousness that it bore. And then, Lord, as we face hardship in the future, help us to respond, not in the way that the world does, not, not as victims, not as um, uh, clueless sufferers or, or people who just check out because it all feels so meaningless. Help us to stay engaged. Help us to run to you, not away from you. And to live with great hope because of who you are making us to be and the, the quality of life that you've promised for us forever. We love you, Lord. Amen.